Hi, this is Andy Brewer with Northwest Area Health Education Center. I'm here with Dr. Joseph Skelton, who is the director of Brenner Fit Families and Training. Today, we're going to talk about culinary medicine. Welcome, Joey. Hey, thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. So, uh, what is culinary medicine, and what is it not? Yeah. So, <laughs> culinary medicine, the the simple, I always got to start with the simple, and then I'll get more complex. The simple explanation is it's learning about nutrition through cooking, um, and it started... I mean, it started within a med school. It actually was about 2003 in one of the, the SUNY State University in New York upstate. They'd started a program. It really took off in around 2007, Harvard School of Public Health, um, which was a course you and I had taken a couple of years ago. They began doing it in combination with culinary school. And I'd say it's really found its footing in 2013. Tulane University, New Orleans, actually start, set this up as part of their medical school curriculum. And it's sort of really spread from there. And so it really comes down to if we want to eat healthy, we got to learn how to cook healthy. And then it's incorporating the nutrition education within that and then linking it to disease, linking it to health and making that connection more solidly. That's right. And we did take that trip to Culinary Institute um, in Napa Valley mm-hmm. back in the, I think it's February 2017. I, I think so. Yeah, it was a horrible trip having to go to Napa <laughs> about that time of year. It was absolutely horrible. Right. And what struck me about it, I mean, you have all these uh, PhDs and, and MDs from doc, uh, from Harvard and other prestigious schools. And, and really, um, the thing that stood out was their love of food mm. and their love of preparing food and, and um, being mindful about the nutrition, but also um, deliciousness was the word uh, they used a lot. So just enjoying the whole, as- every aspect about food preparation and enjoying the food and, and, and knowing what it's going to do once it gets inside your body. So that was, that was a good, uh, good, uh, introduction for me. And I, you know, we, we had planned that, um, trip as really to, to get the, the motivation and the foundation for the, for the culinary programs that we started here. Yeah. Cause we wanted to sort of see how they did it. Um, and, and I'll admit they did it in kind of a fancy way. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do here is to make that, more accessible to patients, to the community, um, to our area. You know, it's different. Um, it's a different culture, geography, foods, everything here than it is in California or in Boston. And and I love what you said. It, it, we were impressed and felt validated by the love of food that they had. And you would see these chefs that were passionate about healthy eating and eating for better health. There was one of the main chefs out there that taught at the culinary school that um, had been a diabetic, had bariatric surgery, and yet he still loved food. And um, then you had doctors there that were passionate about it. They took off their, they didn't have white coats, but they had on suits and they were taking off their coats and cooking recipes themselves. And here's something that I do with my patients, what I do with my family. And I think for people like you and me, kids of the 80s and 90s, um, when we first started to see the rise in obesity, both in adults and children, food became the enemy. It became about, you know, uh, you know, you, you have to eat certain things that, you know, back then health food was crap food. It wasn't tasty at all. And then we almost went the other way and, um, you know, trying to get the fat free foods or, you know, the low sugar foods, which to sell those foods, they had to put so much other things in them, um, which then later on we found out are not good for your body. And so that think again, for our generation, the idea that you can love food and also love your health and take care of yourself. That was very validating. Well, one of the things I love about this program, I love many things about it is just the fact that we're attracting providers to get a love for all of this, for culinary approaches, um, for health, healthier uh, lifestyles and behaviors. And they're the ones that need to model this. Cause mm-hmm. it's, you know, if you go into a doctor's office and he's got a cigarette, um, like when I grew up, <laughs> my exactly. pediatrician would come, you know, extinguish a cigarette when he walked in yeah. and, you know, tell you, oh, don't, don't smoke, yeah. you know, or, or, or if you're, if your you know primary care physician is is giant um, mm-hmm. and telling you you need to eat healthy, it doesn't mm-hmm. really hold a lot of yep. weight. But if if they're modeling that behavior and they're speaking with authority because it's something they love, I think it it translates into how they speak about it and the passion that they would have. Oh, to absolutely, the and and research supports exactly what you're saying is. Um, Physicians, APPs, nurses, dietitians, anyone that takes a special interest in their own diet and in eating healthy is much more likely to talk to their patients about it. And and that can be a little bit of a two-edged sword. So um, 
you know, it's actually a research study that we'd done here. One of the uh, med students of volunteers with Brenner Fit in the kitchen. Um, his dad actually had been a chef in a, you know, in a previous career. And we actually surveyed, um, it was actually the class of 2023 um, coming in of how many of them have taken a cooking class, have taken a nutrition class. Very few of this class. You know, they've been taking biology and a lot of other classes. So in within medical school, nutrition is integrated here and there, but overall there's just not a lot of room um, for nutrition education, much less culinary education within medical school. So doctors are getting out with really not much of a background in this. And typically what we know is that they're going to use their own background. So if Dr. A lost a lot of weight by doing a keto diet, that's what unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your view of that, that they're going to be teaching to a lot of their, their patients. And so that's why the idea of culinary medicine, including nutrition within the education in a very applicable way, you could talk all day about saturated fat to your patients, but you can talk to saturated fat to your patients in regards to the oil that you use. Oh, you might want to use less butter and use canola oil and olive oil. Here's some other ways that you can incorporate healthy fats into there. And by being able to talk it's what someone referred to as applied nutrition. Mm-hmm. So you can learn the stuff and, and bring it into your home, bring it into your kitchen, and not just have the knowledge up there that you're not using. Well, that's where the term translational comes in. I mm-hmm. mean, in, in, in science, to be able to tell a story that the layperson can understand without their eyes glazing mm-hmm. over. And I think that that's the story we want to talk about in, in food and in the culinary approach is that um, it's something to love and enjoy, not something you have to do, right. or or you're going to suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. It's 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 adapting that story to bring it into your home and to make it a part of your life because you enjoy doing it, and mm-hmm. you want to do it, and you enjoy feeling healthy. There's a lot of spillover effect, and so with the work we do with families and children, we know that the more meals that families eat together, so just the broad term family meals. And that could be a breakfast. Um, your boss talks about that when his kids got really busy, he would wake them all up for breakfast on a weekday. He said he'd have to throw cold water on them to get the teenage boys to come down and eat. But any family meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner that when you get up that four to five times a week of sitting down and having a family meal, which can be tough for busy families that we know those kids eat healthier. We know that they tend to be at a healthier weight. We also know they tend to do better in school. They tend to have less depression, less likely to use drugs and alcohol, less likely to have unintended pregnancies. So that spillover effect of food and the family meals of what it does for family is amazing because it it facilitates communication. If you start including your kids within the planning of it, um, it's not just you trying to force healthy food down your kids mouth it's you you know you you include them in the process but it still is a chance to model and be a parent pick your youngest child and say okay hey you get to choose the vegetable tonight that we're going to have for dinner i want gummy bears nope (laughs) not going to do it so it's it's always as with everything with parenting as you know everything's sort of in between with that you include them but it's also an opportunity to say actually that doesn't count as a gummy bear doesn't count as a leafy green vegetable let's talk about some other options and typically that when you get them engaged with it that's an increase their involvement with the food preparation they're actually going to enjoy more foods it's a great way to overcome picky eating is getting them more involved with the food preparation well i was going to say that um you know to involve them in, in picking the food and preparing it it also creates an engagement with the parent child relationship too is that you're collaborating you're cre- talking you're which talking sometimes can be, yeah you can't cook with your phone in your hand unless you're looking up a recipe but yeah and you're teaching them a life skill mm-hmm. that, that they're going to need knife skills and and how to prepare uh different vegetables mm-hmm. and and i always remember the story that uh one of the elementary schools had a had a garden vegetable garden that they did in the back and some of the kids did not even know mm-hmm. what a tomato looked like on a vine they don't know what a you know that barbecue comes from a pig or you yeah. know they don't they don't know what it really looks yeah, like so in their it's life. Yeah. so disassociated and to see you know a, a potato out of the garden's got dirt on it mm-hmm. and you're like i'm gonna eat that mm-hmm. well yeah i'm gonna show you how to prepare it wash it and and, and, and it. you involve kids in growing food and mm-hmm. not everyone can do that but you involve kids with growing food they're much more likely to eat it right um, um so back to the the training um you know, most most people in medicine, even if they're not doctors, have heard of the Hippocratic Oath, which is, uh, you know, first do no harm. Mm-hmm. But the second part of that is let thy food be thy medicine. Yeah, and thy exactly. Medicine be thy yeah. food. So is that rooted in? Oh, in, absolutely. In, and, you know, the with culinary medicine, um, 
you know, again, we, we try to make it a little more basic. And by basic, we talk about the balance plate, which we can talk more about. But a lot of culinary medicine tends to be based on what overall research has shown to be the best overall diet approach. And what would be the best overall diet? The best for our health and something that we actually enjoy eating. And that tends to be the Mediterranean diet. There's others that there's great research. Um, you know, the DASH diet, um, the dietary um, uh, uh, di- dietary approach to stopping hypertension. They're all fairly much the same. And again, to put it in sort of my simple terms with the Mediterranean, with the balanced plate, you talk about every meal having a protein and having a whole grain and starch and then having fruits and vegetables. And then within each of those categories, trying to find the highest quality possible. So with the Mediterranean diet, that protein is going to be a lot of fish. It's going to be a lot of plant-based proteins or a lot of leaner meats or using those meats in smaller amounts. There's a thing that's called the protein flip that we talk about in the series where instead of the meat being the focus of the meal, like it tends to be in an American diet where you have a big old cut of steak and then sides of vegetable and starch and stuff like that, the meat is cut up and is, you know, uh, steak on a salad or mm-hmm. something like that, or meat is used to flavor. So with you and I being from the South, the idea we think about collard greens being cooked with a ham hock. Well, first of all, there's not a lot of bad stuff that a ham hock's eating. And in our ancestors, when they were eating this on the farm, that was the protein of the meal. So it was little bits of meat that were adding flavor and protein to that. So, but looking at the proteins and the, and the quality of the fat with the Mediterranean, Mediterranean diet is going to be a lot of unsaturated fat, very low saturated fat, grains being whole grains, complex grains and not simple carbohydrates, and then a lot of leafy green fruits and, you know, fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. So really looking at how do you take something like a Mediterranean diet, which you think of being Italian cooking and Spanish cooking, but actually make it more accessible? And that's what we think culinary medicine helps people do. Yeah, and I think along with the balance plate, you're balancing things like budget, you're balancing things like time, um, all the things that have to factor in a family's ability to, to successfully do this program and adapt that lifestyle in, in their lives. And uh, so I think, you know, I guess you talk about this. Yeah, it's actually one of the, the other series with this, this recorded series as well as when it's in person is the idea of doing meal planning. And that's something that we do we call putting it all together. All this sounds very simple, but people very rarely do it. No, so you sit down at the beginning of the week, and I know you do this. You mm-hmm. sit down at the beginning of the week, and you plan your meals out for that week. Um, typically, like for us with school-age kids, they're going to school. You know, we, we tend to have our stuff we eat for breakfast. We eat lunch at school. So we're really coming down to planning maybe some after-school snacks, and you're planning dinner. So you plan those meals for the week. That's hard enough for people to do. Um, once you get the routine of it, it's not bad. You take that meal plan. Then you go through your kitchen. What do we already have? What do we need to go buy? My wife calls it man shopping. When I take my <laughs> when I take my meal plan and I immediately go to the grocery store and I buy a bunch of stuff we already have. Um, so don't man shop. <laughs> so take that list. Look at what you already have. So I've been on this bean tear, and you can buy beans in bulk because they're dried and they last for a long Super time. Super cheap so, too. And I man shop that a lot, and so now I have about eight pounds of pinto beans <laughs> in my cabinet. Um, but yeah, they're so cheap. I don't feel bad. Plus they'll store. So go through your cabinets, go through your fridge, see what you already have. Then you make your grocery list and you go to the grocery store. And I talk a lot about this and the nutrition behaviors, nutrition habits lecture that I give is you need to take that list to the store and you stick to the store. Now, can you be a little spontaneous? You go through the produce, you see something gorgeous. Yeah, you can make a change on the fly. You know, oh, they've got, you know, fresh chicken. It's on sale. Yes, you can make some change on the fly. But overall, stick to your, your, you stick to your shopping list because grocery stores know that we're very vulnerable. Most of the time, we're going to buy stuff that's at our eye level. A lot of um, companies selling especially shelf-stable foods that aren't going to be very good for you, they pay for premium space. They pay for that area at the end of the aisle or at that eye, and they know that you're much more likely to pick that. And this sounds like it's no wise tale, but it's very, very true. Don't shop hungry. First of all, don't shop without a list. But second of all, don't shop hungry. When you're hungry, it naturally gears your decision-making to try to buy things that are a little easier to make. Um, I'll make one final comment on this, but it, some of this goes into the science behind hunger. Now, how people think hunger and picky eating are very 
you know, genetic traits that we're born with? Absolutely not. Now, how much we eat, that's got some amount of genetic control, um, but not all. But our hunger is way more influenced by things around us than it is by our own physiology. You have to not eat typically about three to five hours. So it takes three to four hours for your stomach to fully empty. And you're still going to have that food in your small intestine, your large intestine, to still be absorbing it. So it's really not till about five to six hours that you start to feel kind of hungry. And typically, it's not the hunger that we're thinking about. Your stomach, that sound that it makes, that's actually true. It'll make some sounds. You might feel a little weak, tired, grumpy, something like that. But most of the hunger that we complain about tends to come from things around us. Seeing food, smelling food, thinking about food. So you're in a grocery store and you're hungry and you're trying to stick to your shopping list and you smell that rotisserie chicken, you see the pre-made sandwiches, you see the, the hot items at the hot bar. Think about the grocery stores you go into. When you walk in, the first thing you're walking to, into typically is a produce, but the grocery stores I go to, it's that hot bar. Yep. And they're wanting you to pull you over to think, yeah, you can go make all that, but you could come over here and buy it, take it home and eat it immediately. So make that list. That's a big part of what we talk about is doing that meal planning that we talk about in one of the series. Well, you, you uh, dispelled a lot of myths there. One of the myths that I like to uh, remind people of, it's actually cheaper to eat healthy when you are mindful about what you're buying, making the list, sticking to it, and um, you know being a careful shopper and mm-hmm. buying things on sale, but also buying those nutritionally dense foods right. that don't cost a lot. It's just the the main cost is your time, mm-hmm. and when you factor in everything and compare it to going through the drive-through, I mean you you can feed so many more meals. For so less money than you can one trip. To we even, in one of our lectures, even lay out the cost of a meal at a sit-down, fast-casual chain restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, ham- actually, no, we actually do one for a fast food restaurant of, you know, four hamburgers, four fries, four sodas. And then even showing, I'm talking about the unhealthy food, going to a grocery store and getting frozen fries that you can cook in the oven, making a hamburger, buns, tomato, ketchup, it's about half the cost. So even eating unhealthy, because people talk about eating healthy is expensive. If you want to buy pre-made or easy to make healthy food, it does get expensive because typically the easier food is to make or the more processed it is, the less healthy it is. So they have have to spend more money and more effort to make it healthy. So if you want quick and easy healthy food, it can be expensive. Mm -hmm. But that's a big part of culinary medicine is let's learn some simple skills that you can make tasty, healthy food, which will end up being way cheaper. And um, so healthcare and nutrition, um, you know, you you mentioned historically how everything became – uh, low fat and and kind of tasteless or, mm. or not fun. Um, you know, just talk a little bit about the trends that are current in the U.S. for our diets. Are our numbers looking better? Are mm. we getting less obese? Are we getting yeah. less diabetic? Or are we just pla- plateauing? Or is it you know what are we doing? The simple answer is is we are we're sort of plateauing when it comes to things such as heart disease, obesity, things like that. The more complicated answer is it's complicated. Um, I think when it comes to the work that I do with childhood obesity is overall the numbers are plateauing. You hear, you hear these little success stories here and there, but overall the numbers have shown that we're plateauing. But what we're also finding is the kids most affected by weight, it's continuing to get worse. And that's a lot there with adults. So I think maybe we've seen a little bit of improvement when it comes to, um, mainly it comes down to the care that we provide you have a heart attack, we can get you in quicker, get that opened up, have surgery, we can put you on medication, lower your cholesterol. So overall, our care that we're providing has helped and for several years was prolonging life expectancy. But overall, the data right now is showing that we're starting to lose that life expectancy. And a lot of that comes down to diseases that are related to diet. And when you throw in cancers, because a lot of cancers are related to nutrition, you throw that in you really start to see the diet-related impact on health as being huge. And as many advances that we're getting, as much as we know now, we're still sort of struggling with it. And, and we're dealing, and I think a lot of the public has lost faith in the healthcare community and lost faith in science, barring any discussion of COVID and stuff like that, is lost some of my faith in science because of some mistakes that were made. Because sometimes if we focus too much on just one 
macronutrient. In the 80s and 90s, it was saturated fat. So instead of saying, hey, we need to raise the amount of unsaturated fat or polyunsaturated fats or omega-3 fatty acids, let's just go low fat. Well, that backfired because we had to replace it with something. And then we went through a phase of sugar's bad, fat is good. Well, no, fat is not good. Healthy fats are good. So we have to recognize how complex this is and not try to simplify it. And I think that's what we always sort of want because this stuff is tough. We have a lot of other stuff in our mind. We can't have thinking about what we're eating, drinking, and exercising 24-7. So we want some simple rules to follow. And unfortunately, as you know, life is just not that simple. Well, I, I mean, I think I think it is good to approach this because it is a complex issue, but also uh, how simple it can be when you just apply just some basic heuristics about your daily intake yeah. of, of food and what you're putting in and also what you need to get out of it. And, and that goes into lifestyle and, and behavior modification. And uh, I've always heard just a, a simple, you know, to, to stick with simple simple rules is like it's you know to be healthy 80 percent nutrition 20 percent fitness mm. and if you eat well you don't have to exercise all the time mm. to to be healthy um in fact your food will if your food is of high quality and you have good habits um your energy level is going to be high anyway and probably just your daily life you're going to be doing more activity, walking further from where you park your car, taking the stairs. You know, you just mm-hmm. want to do those things versus if you're having low, uh, low nutrition, high calorie, high, high sugar, high sodium, all this. You might just not have the energy. So it's that that negative loop mm-hmm. that, that just, you know, destroys your ability to feel well and to to feel at ease instead of in this cycle of disease. Yeah. Well, and I know I just told you not to simplify things, but <laughs> a very simple term that will, you know, you hear a lot about exercise as medicine. Um, exercise is good for us in a lot of ways. We typically, I think we've been made to think exercise is just about weight loss. And actually when it comes to weight loss, exercise is overall less important than nutrition. When it comes to keeping weight off, exercise is very important. But exercise is important, period. So yes, exercise is medicine. Exercise does stuff for our bodies and for our health in a lot of very different complex ways. It is absolutely just as important for nutrition for overall fitness. But when it comes to a lot of health, a lot of it does come down to the aspect of what you're what you're putting in your body and and putting some some mind you know putting some mindfulness to that. An analogy that I'll make with people when I talk about trying to make slow cho- slow changes is, you know, Winston to me is still kind of a, well, I I go back and forth. I was raised in a town of about 50,000. So the next big city that we would go to was Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about the same size as Winston, about 200,000 people. It felt huge. I'd be scared driving there when I was driving in high school and college. I'm just kind of terrified. Um, Then we moved to Memphis and we moved to Milwaukee, towns of, you know, almost a million people. So, and eventually I was, I was terrified to drive there. Eventually I became much more comfortable. So now coming back to Winston, Winston's great to drive around in. It's easy to find our way around. And so think about nutrition that way, that and and cooking and eating and planning your meals. Right now you gotta put a lot of attention to it. If you're in school, working job, raising kids, you don't have a lot of attention you can put, but try to put some to it. And put enough attention until it gets to be a routine. And then you don't have to put as much attention to it. So then cooking and making a healthy meal doesn't take as much energy. Um, much like driving. Once you drive in a big city for a while, it's really not that difficult to find your way around and feel safe. So once you get used to cooking and preparing healthier meals for your family, over time it gets to be a little bit of a habit and you don't have to put that much attention to it. So we don't meal plan as much now as we did five years ago because now it's become kind of second nature. You know, Now we have 10 to 20 recipes that we, we don't even need to break out the recipe anymore. Um, because it becomes such a routine with it. And so that's what we want people to do. And especially doing something hands-on of learning how to cook. It takes a lot of effort initially, but once you get it as part of your routine, your practice, it doesn't take that much effort. I mean, that, that's, that's medical education. This is, well, the deans will get mad at me for saying this. The old, the old saying with medical education was see one, do one, teach one. And so that's where, you know, whether we're doing this live or you're watching a cooking video like we're doing in this series, you can see one, cook, watch it once, then watch it and cook along with it. Do what they're doing, pause it, catch up a little bit, or, you know, go get, you forgot to get out a certain spice, go get it. So then do it once. So, and then practice it, get good at it, and then you don't have to 
read the recipe anymore. You don't have to watch someone else do it. So it's a matter of getting this to be a routine, putting some attention to it until you don't have to put it, until it becomes second nature. Well, I think we, we've also um, probably mentioned a, a little bit, we kind of danced around it, but the social um, gains from it, from just being preparing together, sitting down and eating together, or if you're not, if you live by yourself or, or work all the time, just taking the time out to enjoy the meal mm. and not just shovel things in because you're hungry and you don't have much time. But I think just slowing down a little bit, um, really being mindful of, of what we're eating. And one of the exercises is the savor the grape or savor the raisin yeah. or one of those. So those are fun things to get you your mind to appreciate slowing things down mm. and, and really um, treating your food as as a blessing mm. which is what it is and also to to just appreciate what it's going to do for your body whether you're spiritual or religious it doesn't matter you still can give thanks for what you're about to put into your body and what and, and even just uh put it out there what you want to get out from it mm -hmm. you know what do you want to accomplish in the next three four hours mm -hmm. and and that's what we're doing we're fueling our bodies mm -hmm. to continue to live <laughs> that's the mindfulness part of it right. and that's one thing with um especially lunches whether it's lunch at work or lunch from work from home is still taking that break you actually need that mental break if you're watching tv and eating you're not going to enjoy your food as much you're going to eat way more and you're actually going to get hungry sooner um, if you don't pay attention to it but if you sit down slow down eat the meal i'm a fast eater always been i was youngest of four kids so i had to run in there and eat as much as i could um, because my brothers were coming and we're going to um, take some from me and so the idea of getting people to slow down with eating and, and enjoy it and, and we know that you sit down when you when you eat without some distraction what we tend to generally call it as electronics um, you tend to enjoy your meal more. You actually tend to eat less. You tend to be more satisfied with it. It takes about 20 minutes for hunger to be satisfied. And if you're eating quick on the go, putting your head in the fridge, eating in the car, you're eating in about five to 10. And so you're not giving that signal time to go from your stomach and your brain, that signal to get there to say, hey, you're full. So that's where sort of eating and slowing down comes it's just giving time to get full and you tend not to eat as much there's a there's a term i think it's in um japan it's about eating to 80 percent mm -hmm. um and what that sort of accounts for is you don't need to eat to full fullness um you know you can eat till you're beginning to be satisfied and then if you stop there it'll sort of continue and a lot of the idea of trying to eat and actually there's a fantastic study done i don't think we covered this in the talks there's a fantastic study done where they um this was a special lab at the nih where I mean, they control everything and they gave one group of people, um, let's just say, 18 or 2,000 calories a day, but they gave it to them in processed food. And then they gave another group 2,000 calories a day, but of fresh made food. And they actually found that the people with the processed food ate quicker, ate more of it, and actually gained more weight from it. And overall, we think it's because we tend to eat, it's, it's been processed and reconstituted, so we actually tend to eat it a little bit quicker. Um, and be less satisfied and actually complain of hunger more versus the whole food, which is still going to be food in its original state. The, one of the writers said, um, best rules to follow of eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yep. Um, and Michael Ballin. Yeah. And Michael Ballin, yep. And so you just tend to take a little bit longer to eat it um, and and therefore end up enjoying it. Um, there, you know, the big focus with the balance plate, and we touched on this some in the health behaviors of what sort of drives our hunger, well, what also drives our fullness. And again, don't make it too simplistic. We've been very, very focused on protein for a while. Obviously, protein is important. Protein is the most filling macronutrient there is, but that's not all there is. So there's that aspect of being full, what I call chemically full, that that protein is being slowly broken down, filling you up, hitting all the receptors, telling you that you're full. But there's also the distension full. And this was the low-fat 80s and 90s. We had all those sort of low-fat foods, um, and you know we were never really... You, know, you would be distended and you would feel full but not very satisfied because then we went to eating just pure salads with no protein. Um, that's always one of my rules. If someone goes, a teenager goes vegetarian, you got to meet with a dietitian. she got to focus on the protein. So we also have to feel full. Um, but if you feel full without the protein, you're not really fully full. And also it's got to taste good. You know, typically if you eat food that's not very satisfying, you're going to, your brain's always going to be looking for that next thing. And so that's the idea with culinary medicine. It's the seasoning. 
it's the balance, you know, it's having the protein and the fiber that comes from the whole grains and the fiber and water that you get from fruits and vegetables. So it's feeling distended full because you're full of things that are, um, they contain a lot of water, like, you know, like cantaloupe does, or contains a lot of fiber, like whole grain farro, which is a big thing that they love cooking with Mediterranean cooking, um, that we learned a lot about in California. And plus you have that protein, which fills you up in other ways and keeps you full. So again, it's that sort of the whole balance. Don't get too obsessed with one macronutrient. Look at it all. Well, I think that's one of the beauties of, of learning to prepare your own meals and cook is that you get to formulate, formulate it to your taste buds too. And, and like fast food and, and uh, processed food is formulated in labs by people who want you to eat more of it. Yep, absolutely. Um, so you can uh, experiment with that in your own kitchen and, and, and create that flavor mm-hmm. that you like the best. Now, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've noticed is like when you give up um, sugar, added sugar and, and too much salt, you actually have to adapt to that you don't need as much salt you don't need as much sugar and you start tasting the natural sweetness in things and Mm -hmm. the natural sodium in things and i I think that that just a process like you said it just can't happen all at once it's a slow thing that you get Mm -hmm. you you just have to you know know that it's happening when you do it one of the real chefy things you remember learning (laughs) about is they love using sea salt or kosher salt which are larger grains of salt so you actually end up using less sodium when you use a sort of larger grain salt because that grain tends to stay you tend to see it more we tend to salt by sight you know yeah if you're cooking from recipe and it says a quarter teaspoon of salt sure um you'll you'll cook by volume but typically when you start seasoning to taste you're doing it by sight well if you're doing bigger grains of salt because they're big flaky grains of salt you end up taking in less sodium and only 11 percent of our daily sodium intake comes from foods that we cook so when people are trying to cook healthy, oh, I'm not going to put a lot of salt on there. No, you need to season the food to enjoy it. Otherwise, you're not going to make that recipe again. Um, and don't worry. And I'm not saying dump salt on it, but yeah. season it for it to taste good because most of your sodium is coming from processed foods or mm. coming from fast foods or foods that you don't make. So, yeah, learning how to season things like that, which, again, sort of goes with the idea of this is we all know how to cook something. But actually, most of us only cook about 10 to 12 recipes on a regular basis. You don't need to cook a ton more, but if you're not eating a lot of meals at home, maybe ask yourself the question, am I not cooking meals that I enjoy, that I crave, that I want to serve my family? And also assume the same thing with your patients is that, you know, they, they, if you want them to eat healthier, they're going to need to learn how to cook healthier and to learn how to cook healthier. They need to learn how to cook. And I think that's probably a good starting point for a lot of people is, is take an inventory of the places you like to eat and what you like to eat at them and see if you can prepare something mm-hmm. close to it yeah. on your own using cheaper and more healthy. My ingredients. wife was not a big egg fan, um, has never liked eggs until it was at a restaurant that she they cooked the fire out of her eggs. <laughs> I mean, to the point, I think they smell bad. I mean, but, you know, she sees me cooking a, you know, yeah, a, sunny, side a up. sunny side up and she's over there gagging. Um, but she learned, actually, I like eggs when they're really, really cooked well. And so that's the way she cooks her eggs at home. And she would, you know, and eggs, cheap. Eggs have a lot of cholesterol. However, you don't absorb that cholesterol. So the cholesterol you get from eggs does not impact the cholesterol from your blood draw. So eggs are now back in. And so she's actually has learned to eat eggs a few days a week, but she just cooks the fire out of them. Yeah, Plus puts a lot of salsa on them too is what she likes. So. <laughs> yeah, eggs are one of those things that got beat up for a while. Yep. And now, you know, it's, it's a staple at my house. And when, again, it's those mistakes that we made in the past. Oh, it's all about low fat. No, it's not about low fat. It's about healthy fat. Oh, it's high in cholesterol. Actually, the cholesterol in those eggs don't impact your cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of undoing some of these mistakes that we've made. I, I mean, I do it every single day. I'm trying to sort of undo some bad information that's out there. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit. I, I want to address, um, and I don't know how much you go into it in the, in the program, but like metabolism and we mm-hmm. started talking about that a little bit before we got started mm-hmm. like uh, metabolic effects and stuff like that um, as far as workouts but uh, metabolism's huge mm-hmm. in weight control and weight loss yeah and, and say, satiety and and feeling right. and not hungry and all yeah that. well they've actually shown even with people that exercise regularly that they they tend not to quite be as hungry whereas initially when you start to exercise more sometimes your hunger goes up and so there's a lot of complexity with that and and a lot of that and this kind of comes to giving people grace when they're trying to change health behavior. So a lot of people might make a nutritional change. They might give up regular sodas and switch to diet sodas or switch to water. We don't always see a big change in weight, but what we always want to guarantee people is even if I don't see a change in weight, I guarantee 
with all those things being equal, if you're drinking a lot less sugar, I guarantee your body's healthier right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you make a switch um, to using more canola oil and less butter, I guarantee your body's healthier now than it was before. And so it's getting people first to focus on the changes they make to improve health. A lot of those changes over time will build up and will begin impacting their weight and things like that. And it also accounts, like you said, sort of individualization Mm -hmm. um, is allowing people to find out what's going to work for them, what sort of dietary approaches are going to work for them. There's There's an old joke that's really funny that they talk about the difference in diets between different cultures. And Japanese, they eat very little fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. Um, French eat a ton of fat. You think about the butter and things like that. And they suffer fewer heart attacks than British or, America, um, or Americans. Japanese drink very little red wine, suffer fewer heart attacks. Italians drink a ton of red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks. So you get the theme of what's the, most, what's the common thing about what causes more heart attacks? It's speaking English um, from that. So, you know, it really shows that there can be a whole lot of differences and that, um, you know, the Mediterranean diet is not specific just to Italy or to Spain. It's a lot of that. And so it's drawing sort of the best out of a lot of those different areas around the Mediterranean and trying to find out what those core things are. You know, I love, as I pointed out earlier, I love pointing out the similarities between how, you know, how... You know, I make a lot of vegetarian collard greens, but how my grandparents maybe make collard greens with a little bit of a ham hock in there and the little bit of fat and salt and the little bit of meat that that adds. It's very similar to what they do in the Mediterranean of trying to flavor with meat instead of it being um, the, the main part of it. You know, pinto beans. It's a different type of bean that you'll see in a lot of Mediterranean cooking, but it's still a great healthy bean. And so pulling some of those commonalities and doing those things, that's some of the recipes that we do come down to doing a vegetarian collard green, as well as doing a grain bowl. You know, we got really exposed to Faro in our culinary medicine class that we took and bringing in some of the new stuff. And that's one of the biggest things. Um, Start with something familiar and begin adding. When we talk about people trying to have a balanced plate, make sure there's something on that balanced plate that you know that you like and you'll eat. And then just try introducing one thing it's called it's called chaining you try to tag something familiar with something unfamiliar chefs do that trick all the time if i want to serve something funky i'm going to pair it with something that you're very familiar with yeah that's great um so let's get to like brass tacks here um in in the in the practices um and again this this program's geared towards uh, providers Mm -hmm. and clinicians um you know they don't have a lot of time to spend with patients um what are what are the core yeah. things that that you want to impart on them and the tools that, that they can implement? No, great, yeah, great point because not everyone you can't, you know, we're pretty lucky we get to cook with our patients sometimes. Not everyone can do that, or like you said, have the time. But there's a lot of things, and we're hearing this from people that have taken the class in the past. Is it gives me a different framework in which I can talk to patients. So instead of saying less saturated fat, more fruits and vegetables, they can say, okay, let's talk about things that you can do to add in a vegetable to your dish. So let's look at this balanced plate. What are the vegetables that you like that we can add into there? Oh yeah, you want a salad five nights a week? You don't get sick of it? Sure, you can do that. Let's talk about the meats. What are your protein that you're eating with that dinner? And let's talk about how we can make a little bit of a change in that. How can we have a meatless Monday? How can we, you know, cook with canola oil instead of butter? So it gives them a a framework, a very concrete down-to-earth framework of how can we make some changes with that and then you can go even deeper in the you know doc i've tried this you know i just can't i don't like to cook and so you might say okay well let's talk about how you can add a little bit of variety how you can buy pre-made salads you go to a bunch of the big box stores and they have these wonderful pre-made salads with kale and stuff like that yeah you might spend a little bit more but it's a thing that you can do and you can recommend Um, but talk about the behaviors behind it hey let's talk about meal planning you like to cook, you don't have time. Well, let's talk about some things. Let's talk about how you meal plan. Let's talk about how you shop for foods, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it really gets down into some of the nitty gritty of how you can take these culinary medicine, Mediterranean diet, healthy eating concepts, and gives you the vehicle um, in which to talk. So yeah, I, and, and again, we even extended into, I give out recipes all the time. I hear from my patients all the time that they love it. And some of that because you've shown enough interest 
instead of fussing at them about something, you're providing some resources. So I provide recipes to my patients all the time because I get them talking about things that they like to eat. Mm -hmm. um, and that can go a long ways. You know, you could have stuff sitting out instead of having a fitness magazine that maybe gives them an unrealistic goal to achieve. You could have recipes sitting out and, you know, use the logos, get your office together and say, hey, let's all share some recipes. And even your practice, you could leave recipes out that our nurse Tim or our nurse Susan, this is their favorites, um, sweet potatoes with uh, rosemary and salt and pepper recipe, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Um, it's those actions alone won't fix anything, but it it can definitely increase your your relation to your patients, the trust your patients have because you understand your understanding them enough to try to help them make changes going to immediately impact them versus, um, you know, like a lot of people, they'll tell us, you know, I, I've kind of given up. I've talked about it with years. Well, how, let's try a different tack and let's talk about cooking. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention too is, is the, uh, discussion about language and goals. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people come in, I want to lose 20 pounds before, you know, swimsuit season mm -hmm. and how that, um, kind of sets you up for failure and instead say i want to feel good mm -hmm. you know i want to feel better i'm tired of being tired i, I just feel lethargic I, you know i know my my lab work you know some numbers are there that look out of range but i don't know what that mm -hmm. means and and um instead of uh you know pinning a number and, and studying the scale every day um you know, we, so we it's smart goals smart specific goals. measurable attainable realistic and timely now when you set a goal it's not going to you know catch all five of those but it does give you so instead of saying i want to lose 10 pounds um pick out something that you you know you need to change and that you're likely to change start start with an easy win you know i, I don't eat breakfast you know i don't eat breakfast seven days a week this week i'm going to eat it twice a week and you know what you achieved it oh that was fairly easy you know let's go to three days a week let's go to four days a week now let's start talking about um, you know, what, what am I drinking? You know, am I drinking a lot of um, things with sugar in them? I drink a lot of alcohol. Um, let's kind of go from, I'm going to cut back from three sodas a day down to one a day. I can do that. Mm -hmm. Cold turkey might be a little intimidating at first. Yeah. Um, and so it's setting those realistic goals. And then also setting a timetable. This week, I'm going to eat out twice. Um, you know, and, and by three weeks, I want to be in the habit of them eating breakfast three days a week. So set a, set a very defined time and, and a very defined goal and how, how you're going to go about achieving it. Yeah, because rapid weight loss is actually unhealthy. Right, exactly. Your body doesn't like that. It fights against it. And again, it's that adapting the metabolism over time, mm -hmm. I think, is, is when you're looking at long-term gains. Yeah. I, think, I think that's a, the strategy, too, that I know you talk about um, is, is making it a life lifelong pursuit mm -hmm. is, is, is of wellness and health. And, yeah. and it's not just an immediate, you know, stop everything you're doing. And now you got to eat all this. And if you go on a crazy restrictive diet and you think about doing this rest of my life, you're not going to want to do right. that. But if you start making little changes here and there, yeah. and again, you give yourself the skills with cooking, with meal planning, you give yourself the skills that you can do that for a long time. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, just a strategy that popped in my mind is, is sometimes I'll get the, the kids are like, uh, well, you know, what's for supper? And I'm like, well, I don't really have much, but we're gonna get to make a grocery run. And I'll say, let's go for a walk and let's talk about what we want mm. for for the week, and, and then we'll make a grocery list on that. So we're actually actively, you know, mm -hmm. having that family time, but also being active. And uh, collaborating on, on and on then work. you also know that you have the food in the house that they want to eat. Exactly. Um, there, one study said that eighty percent of us don't know what we're going to have for dinner at four p.m. So from four p.m. when you start thinking about dinner till whatever activity you have to get your kids to and homework and stuff like that, do I have it in the house? Do I have time to cook it, or should I just go through fast food restaurant? And so by planning, you know you have in your house, you know it's something that they're going to eat, and then you can also know about how long it's going to take. You know, for us, we, you know, we love that Instant Pot. And I know now with my new obsession with beans is I know, oh, if I don't get home by this time, I probably won't have enough time to get them in, so I, you know, I need to make sure I have a different protein. Or, you know, sometimes you grab a rotisserie chicken, but then I do have the time to put together a salad or roast a vegetable or something like that. It's all about that planning, you know. Well, and just to dispel the myth that eating healthy is expensive. I mean, you know, I always pick on Chick-fil-A in these kind of mm -hmm. discussions, but uh, I'll take, you know, if I drive through and, and have to get four sandwiches, that's that's $16. Yeah. And I can buy two rotisserie chickens at 
one of the most expensive grocery mm. stores uh, out there. I shouldn't it rhymes with uh, uh, flesh market, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you know, but it's you know fourteen dollars. I've yeah. got two whole baked rotisserie chickens that i can add you know rice or i can add a pasta later something like that and i don't i don't think we are cooking it in this series but one of our the very first recipes that brenner forever taught and we still teach a lot is sweet potato black bean chili Mm -hmm. and to feed a family of four and it is a good recipe um I mean, I think a family form, maybe it's $8 or yeah. something like that. And it's a good recipe. Yeah. Canned beans, fresh sweet potatoes, which is one of the two state North Carolina vegetables. Yeah. Um, you know, it's got chicken broth. Um, it's, you know, onion. It's really nothing to it. It's a really good, really good thing to do. Yeah. And I think, I think it's actually fun to create healthy, delicious meals mm-hmm. and see how cheaply you can make yeah. it because it is i mean if, if you if you just spend a little bit of time on that front end you really see the savings now yeah. uh let's go into the program that um we're leading all this in with this this little recording here and mm-hmm. why don't you just go through the different lectures and and what what the uh, participants can look forward to yeah so um with what we're doing with the culinary medicine, you know, starts out with this podcast, but the rest are going to be, um, given that we're doing so much virtually now, it will be a lot of it will be things that are recorded, um, both um, the lectures as well as a lot of the cooking that we're going to do. So the one of the first uh, sort of presentations, well, I'll talk a lot about the nutrition behavior. So I'm not talking much nutrition, but talk about a lot of the behaviors, what causes us to eat certain ways, um, you know, what what are the things that we can do to help us get in the habit of eating healthy? What causes us to overeat or causes us to eat unhealthy? Um, we'll also be looking at the impact of diet on disease and go drill down a little bit more. There's so much out there, but luckily over the past couple of years, probably about three to five years, um, a lot of epidemiologists and others have really synthesized the thousands of studies that have been done on diet. And we don't try to break it down too much. Like I said, we can't make things too simple, but we really go into the idea of here are the few here are the handful of core diet studies that have really impacted what we know about health and disease and, and also try to deliver in a way that it's not intimidating and that um, it's something that you can take away and something that you could relate um, um, to your patients. Um, we'll then have some actually recorded cooking series. So you'll actually, um, myself, uh, one of our chefs, uh, Chef Najai, um, that is really focuses on cooking on a budget. And so what are some of the things that we can do? Um, what are some simple recipes, simple techniques? Um, the whole idea is that you, like I said, watch it once or just get the recipe that we'll provide ahead of time and make it with the chef as they're going. There's nothing better. See one, do one, teach one. Get in there, learn. We cover knife skills. Um, most of us sort of hold knives wrong, um, and it wears our wrists out. I've got a big cyst on my wrist from holding knives <laughs> wrong. Um, and so, you know, how do we, how do we cut certain things? How do we do it safely? Um, little simple, you know, learn how to use your tools that you got. Um, we do a mindful eating exercise, which I think, and you alluded to that of, um, you know, ways that we can slow our eating pace, enjoy our food more, you know, get away from that eighties and nineties of food is the enemy and realize that food is fine. Um, uh, to, to work with. And then we have a putting it all together then, which I think is one of the more valuable that we really talk about that, that meal planning and the shopping and how putting a lot of the stuff that we talked about, how do you put this into place for yourself? And like I said, put it into place for yourself. You're much more likely to help your patients put it into place for them. Right. I think, I think that just having that experience of, of seeing new approaches and, and reviewing your own habits mm-hmm. um as a as a provider then you get those little insights that you might you know during your active listening of the patient you might find just one thing that could really flip their their yeah. attitude towards the whole mm-hmm. thing and and you know i i find that in my own life um just i'll read a quote it just happens you know it'll be timely sometimes you'll read something and you're like yeah whatever and then sometimes it's just the perfect time to read yeah. it and it really like has a profound impact mm-hmm. on you and one of those things uh, i'd like to share i'm getting a little vulnerable here is that i read a quote that said uh only when we tire of our excess do we have esteem and I know that food has, I've always had this love-hate relationship with food. Mm-hmm. I love to eat. I love good food. Um, but I've used food when I needed to be comforted or mm-hmm. when I felt a little down or when I was bored or lonely. You know, I used food that way and, and used it to excess. And, and then when you tire of it, then you start to see, like, you know, I don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and what is it about 
you know, that behavior don't I like? And let me unpack that and really make the change because then you tire of it. And that's when you start seeing like, no, I'm better than that. I'm worthy of making these changes to, mm-hmm. to, to bring more health into my life. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I just think that, um, you know, those who have the, the go through this program will pick up maybe, you know, one or two little things that they'll just, you know, hear a patient talk about and they'll be able to just respond with some nugget mm-hmm. that will really make a huge impact. Yeah, it's it's changed how I talk to patients about food. I mean, I could talk all day about saturated fat and fruits and vegetables, but then being able to ground it in that balance plate and then be able to ground it in, you know, you can do this, you can make that. I've made that. You know, I understand what you mean with that. I I didn't like zucchini either until I roasted it. You know, we convert more kids to Brussels sprouts through both a stovetop recipe, which I believe we're covering in that, or a roasted. Um, I do that with the medical students. I will take them through three different preparations of asparagus, of Brussels sprouts, of broccoli, um, and it kind of blows their mind. And every single one of them says, man, I never liked it like that. Mm-hmm. You know, steam, I'll never steam broccoli again until you, <laughs> when I, once I learn how to roast it with garlic. And like you said, it one thing almost always seems to click with people and that doesn't mean the rest of it is lost it's just you're going to come back to that at a later time you Mm -hmm. know it could be that you learned how to cut it um cut it a certain way or prepare something a certain way and yeah that's that's a change that we've seen in people going through that there's something that always flips a switch with them and we think that that plants a seed for a lot of people and and it really changes your approach in how you talk to patients people feel a lot less stress talking about nutrition their patients they can make it about food because food is such a part of our culture and such a part we have to have food you have to have food you have to have water you have to have air and if you can find a different way to talk to them about that it can be very freeing both to the clinician as well as to the patient receiving that care yeah and one of the great things about food is you know like you said every human must eat every animal must eat and and you know, learning about new cultures and and learning how other people prepare foods. I mean, we're, I'm always learning new stuff mm-hmm. about how to how to cook and just you know I'll get one little change that I'll incorporate into into uh, my weekly routine and just all of a sudden my kids love it again. Mm-hmm. You know, they're tired of burrito night every four times a week. Yeah. So we, we've retired burritos for mm-hmm. about a, you know, a couple months now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, and that's okay. And that's one thing that you, you certain learn about the behaviors of people that it's just cause you, you know, I, I'm not cooking as much Mediterranean as I was three years ago and that's okay, but I'm going to come back to that cause I already have some familiarity with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've sort of been on this bean kick for a while and then I'm going to go back to this Mediterranean kick and that's okay. You're just expanding your repertoire, getting more comfortable with it. All right. Well, what should we leave our listeners with uh, parting shots here yeah, uh, as we wrap this up? That's a big tough one, but I, <laughs> I hope if you sort of listen to this one, you'll continue and do the rest of the, the culinary medicine course. Like I said, it, even if it's not going to make that change right now, it's going to change your view of how you see nutrition with your patients. And probably at some point you're going to come back, even if it's just learning how to hold that knife correctly, you'll get something out of it. And that's culinary medicine offered at northwestahec.org or nwahec.org. Um, you can uh, register and attend. This time it's all virtual because of the unprecedented times <laughs> that we're now living in. But hopefully we'll in the spring and fall of next year we'll be mm-hmm. able to do more hands-on. Um, but we haven't announced those yet, so take this course and then come do the hands-on. Now, um, the Harvard one that we went to was mainly uh, MDs and that, that level. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the main target audience here? It's it's really, we try to get this t- towards all. You know, I think we've mostly had dietitians and physicians. Um, we've uh, we've had, actually, we've had a lot of nurses. Um, we've had occupational therapists. We've had them all over the place. It's a, it's a pretty diverse group that tends to take this, and I think everyone can get something out of this. And I think even your frontline administrators um, that the patients see when they walk in mm-hmm. can probably get a lot out of it and change their 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 habits as well. So yeah. you want to project that image of, of wellness and health um, from the beginning of the patient experience. Yeah. See one, do one, teach one. That's so. right. Well, thanks for your time today. <laughs> Great. And thanks I hope for our listeners me. enjoy this. Thank Great. you. Thank you.